famous three verses. And so Paul writes in verse 18, if you want to track with me, he says that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so he's saying that the frustrations that you have with your sins, how you might have experienced some of the atrocities of evil when people were unjust against you. And he even includes the frustrations that come about just because of the curse of the ground, the world. It's not only the frustrations and suffering from our sin and evil, but the nature of the world, how things at work, they don't end up the way that you want them to. Things at home, they don't pan out the way that you intend them to. And these are all part of this frustration that we have in this lifetime. So he has this broad picture of suffering, of frustration. He definitely does emphasize the frustrations and suffering that come about from our sins as well. Every time we, we go to those fleeting pleasures that only temporarily give us pleasure, whether it be entertainment, or Netflix, whatever it might be. He also includes those sufferings that come when we do put Christ first. And as a result, we might be persecuted or we might make sacrifice because of what we believe in the gospel. And in light of that, Paul, if you remember, he says, now wait patiently for this future glory that is coming your way. Endure with hope. Persevere while at the same time keeping your eyes forward to this future glory. Now, this is hard to do. In fact, it's impossible because the thing about suffering and tribulation is it has this thing where it sucks you in to have this tunnel vision where all that you can see is that particular suffering and nothing else. It's hard to see something in the future. It's hard to even put God in the picture. And so in order to help us in this impossible task, recently we saw how God sends the Holy Spirit in your tribulation and he groans in our hearts and he intercedes for us. He reminds us of his love for us. And so that's one way God helps us in our suffering. And now in today's passage, he gives the second way that he helps us. Not only does the third person of the Trinity helps us now to wait patiently, he also reminds us of, of something that we have to know about God, and that is his sovereignty. And that's going to be the topic of today's message. You can see that he begins in verse 28 with these words, we know. This is something that you and I have to know. And if you know this, this will help you wait patiently. This will help you endure whatever frustration, whatever tribulation, whatever suffering might be in your life. Not only the Holy Spirit, but knowing this about God. And this will help you to wait patiently. So he writes, and we know. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And this probably is a very familiar verse for many of us. In fact, I looked it up. It's the third most searched Bible verse on the internet. A lot of us might have even memorized this verse. And so it deserves our attention to, to look at its context and see what it's actually saying. 
So in order to do that today, there's three headings. The first is God's sovereignty, God's sovereign power in our lives. The second, God's sovereign purpose for our lives. And thirdly, God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign power, his purpose, and his plan. And please keep in mind, this first point is longer than the other two as we plan out uh, this message. So let's pray and ask the Lord for his help as we look into his word. Father, uh, we know we sometimes throw around this word sovereignty, but God, we have yet to dive into the depths of what this means. And for some of us, who might be tempted to tune out to know, to think, I know this about God, but we pray that your Holy Spirit, may he massage this truth into our hearts so that we believe it with utmost sincerity, especially in our suffering and tribulation. Open our minds, open our hearts. Protect us from the evil one who's vehemently trying to take away the seeds of your truth from our lives. We pray for your power in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So first, God's sovereign power. Now, occasionally in the mornings, I'll stop by Wawa and get my favorite hazelnut coffee in the morning. So if you go in the morning at Wawa, it's probably the busiest time. Uh, in that morning. You see a lot of the regulars making their morning routine to stop by Wawa and get coffee. Now, because they do this every day, they start to get to know some of the other people around this coffee island, and they start to have this small talk. Now, being introverted, I don't engage in any of these conversations, but I eavesdrop, and I like to eavesdrop. And a lot of the times it goes something about like this, you know, how was your week? You know, what have you been up to? And sometimes the other person will respond with something difficult that's going on in their lives. They'll say things, uh, talk about their rebellious teenager or, or their husband uh, got laid off or there's a recent hospital visit. And now when I hear such things, uh, my ears perk up because I'm very interested in how the other person's going to respond to that. And nine out of ten times, it goes something like this. I'm really sorry to hear that. I hope things get better. I hope you feel better. Or some might even have a little bit more of an assertion than say things like, you know what, things are going to be okay. And when I hear such statements, I appreciate the sentiment behind the statements. They're saying, my heart goes out to you. But if you take these words at face value, I wonder just how much assurance those words can bring you. Because the way that we tend to use that word hope today, it's more like wish. Because we don't know if things are going to get better. The best you can say is, I wish things end up better for you. I wish your teenage son returns home. I wish your cancer is healed. But we don't know for sure. And so the tendency that the world has, a lot of us have, is to have this naive optimism. This inherent belief that things will just end up okay. And it's all it is. It's a wishful thinking. That if you have this positive outlook on life, then things will end up okay, right? The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there will be sun. 
When I'm stuck in a day that's gray and lonely, I just stick out my chin and grin and say, oh, the sun will come out tomorrow. My question is, Annie, are you sure? And how certain are you to say such things? Don't mess with my heart right now because ultimately you don't know if the sun will come out tomorrow, right? That's the kind of mentality that we can give at Wawa or wherever else it may be. But Paul writes the same thing in verse 28, doesn't he? He says, all things will work out for good. And so how can Paul say such an assertive statement? And what's the difference between the way that Paul's presenting this and the way that Annie's presenting it? And the difference lies in the fact that in our verse 28, that it's grounded on something. It's grounded upon God's sovereignty. And that's the basis from which you can make such a statement like, things will be okay for you. It will end up in good because God works all things together for good. There is a substance behind such a claim. And that substance, it's God's sovereignty. So there is for us a difference between I wish and I hope. Because the Christian hope, as Romans 5 says, it does not put us to shame. Because Christian hope says that it's actually there. The sun is there. It's just not revealed yet. It's not seen. That's how Christian hope is defined. Just a few verses earlier, Paul writes that for those who are led by the Spirit of God, there is hope for redemption, a hope for the perfection of all things, a hope for the resurrection for our bodies, for our weak feeble, cancer-prone bodies. And he says, in this hope we were saved, and now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Christian hope says that it's actually there. It's present, but you cannot see it. It's not wishful thinking. It's not this naive optimism. That's how hope is defined. But now, when you talk about Christian hope, this assertion that God is behind all things, that he is sovereign even in the midst of your suffering and tribulation, a lot of us, a lot of this world, we have a hard time believing that because the way we operate is we need to see it. We need to see God working. Then I'll believe in him. I need to see how God is working in this suffering. Then I'll believe that he's working. That's why it's so hard for us to believe in the idea of God behind terrorist attacks, behind family separation, behind cancer and disease, and behind whatever sufferings in your life. In fact, it's borderline offensive to bring God in the picture today, to say such things as, as atrocious as these things are, God is there. God is behind it. God is sovereign. You say that to anyone out there in the world today, they will find it offensive. They will scoff. They will say, how could you say such an insensitive thing in the midst of what I'm going through? How can there be a God? 
in light of this suffering. The question is, how can a good, loving God, the God of the Bible, allow some of these things to happen to me? And they cannot see God behind the suffering. Therefore, they cannot see hope. Now, Alvin Plantica, it's a Christian philosopher that I use and quote many times. He says, that's very much a fallacious way of thinking of things. To say such things like, if I cannot see God working in this suffering, I refuse to believe in his sovereignty. And he's saying that just because you can't see something doesn't prove that it's not actually there. He illustrates this by talking about a certain kind of bug in the light of these summer months coming ahead and these camping trips. I'll educate you on a kind of bug that you should avoid. It's a bug called a nauseum. Nasium. And it's actually the combination of three words, no, see, and um, because you can't see them. That's actually its name. And these insects, they're so small. I have a picture of it. I, uh, this is uh, a drawing because I want you to get a good close-up picture. These bugs exist all over the place. And this next picture kind of shows just how small these nosium bugs are. If you can't see it, the next slide points it out for you. If you see that small little dot, it's not a mole. The next picture shows you in respect to your finger, just how small these things are. Now, Planica, he says, say that you're on your summer camping trip, and you go into your tent, and you're looking for your St. Bernard dog. And in your tent, you don't see a St. Bernard dog. You can then walk out of that tent and say and conclude, there are no dogs in my tent. That makes sense. If you go into your tent and you look for a noceum, but you cannot see a noceum, he says you cannot walk out of your tent and confidently conclude, there are no insects in my tent. Do you see what he's saying? So if you bring that thought to the idea of God and suffering, he's saying just because you can't see a reason behind suffering doesn't mean that God's not behind it. Just because we can't make sense of things does not mean that God's behind it and he's sovereign and makes all things work for the good of those who love him. He says that's a fallacious way of Thinking. Tim Keller, he builds upon this idea. He says, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen in your life does not mean there can't be a good reason. If our minds cannot plumb the depths of God's knowledge and transcendence, by definition, doesn't that mean that there are certain things that we don't know? You can't have it both ways, he says. You can't have the transcendent God of the Bible who knows way more than you ever could think of and a God that makes sense every time. That's not the God of the Bible. You might not see God behind such tribulation. does not mean that he's not there. We have a God, Paul says, who is there who is sovereign, and in him we can hope, not wish. Hope into something that is real and that is 
present, just not able to be seen. And for those who love God, this promise is for you. And God does this throughout all of Scripture. Let me present to you one incident. In Genesis, there's the account of a guy named Joseph who had 11 brothers. And like many dysfunctional families, his brothers were jealous of him. He's actually his father's favorite. As a result, his brothers tried to kill him, actually end up selling him into slavery to Egypt. And in Egypt, he's accused of having an illegitimate relationship with his master's wife, so he ends up in jail. And many of us, we know how this story ends. But before we get to the conclusion, let's stop right here. Imagine yourself in Joseph's shoes in that prison cell, not knowing how the story is going to end, not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring. It might be your death. You might rot in prison there for the rest of your life. And imagine what your heart would be feeling. Imagine the thoughts that you'd be thinking. The emotions that are coming up, just of how unjust your brothers, how unjust Potiphar's wife was. And imagine what you would be doing to fight against all inclination to hate them, to be bitter at them, to be bitter at God. But in that moment, that's when we are called to believe God is behind this working out all things for good. And I know that some of us might have been dealt with unjustly throughout your lives. And I know that all of us, we all know, we know the time where you felt like you were in this prison cell, having no way out. And it seems like this is just here to stay. You see no glimmer of anything getting better. And in that moment, it feels impossible to not just give up and to give into your anger and your frustrations, but I pray that in those moments that the Holy Spirit will bring you to mind this verse that in all things, all things, all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. And if you want something more substantial than that, look to the cross. Look to the cross because at face value on what you can see in the moment, the cross was humiliation, death, and suffering. But in God's eyes, it was resurrection, hope, and glory. Because Jesus took the cross, he sacrificed his life for you. Camp out on that thought. And he did not look at the cross at face value, but he saw that behind the cross, was the path for righteousness for you and I, was the path for glory for you and I. And Jesus, he trusted in God to be sovereign behind the cross. And it was that very cross, that very symbol of suffering, humiliation, and confusion that brought upon the greatest resurrection story ever told. And at the end of that Joseph story, he ends up becoming the second most powerful man in Egypt. And through his position, he ends up saving hundreds of thousands of people from starvation. Not only that, he ends up saving his own family from famine, even his own brothers. And when he confronts his brothers, he says to them in this verse, and I recommend all of us to memorize this. Memorize this verse, Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph said to them, do not fear, 
For am I in the place of God? And he says, as for you, you meant for evil, God meant for good. As for you, you meant for evil, but God meant for good, to bring about for many that people should be kept alive as they are today. You can hear such stories, and you might be tempted now to think, well, that's good for Joseph. It's good for his brothers. You can look at the cross and think, well, that's very far removed from what I'm going through right now. And my answer to that is, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be far removed for you. Because the cross, it can be foolish. It can be folly to those who are perishing. But to those who put their hope and their trust and faith in this cross, it's the power of God. What is it going to be to you? Is it some event that happened 2,000 years ago? Or is it the power of God in your suffering now? For those who love God, all things work out for good. For a lot of people, for those who don't love God, you're right. They can't say this. They can't say that all things are going to work out for good because if you look in your verse, there's a condition here. For those who love God. It's not this naive optimism that all things will just end up okay and it will be all right. We can't afford to take such a chance, brothers and sisters. We're dealing with our lives, our very souls here. But Paul makes the assertion, we know in verse 28. And who's the we here? It's not all people. It's not everyone. Because this promise is not for everyone. As we've seen in chapter 8, it's for those who are being led by the Spirit of God in verse 14. It's for those who have the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's for those who have the Holy Spirit in their hearts. It's for those who are justified. It's for those who love God. Now, what I find interesting is, Paul, though it is for Christians, he doesn't say, this is just for those who believe in God. He doesn't say this is just for Christians. He says this is for those who love God. Meaning even if you are a Christian, that in your moment, in your prison cell moment, the call is love God in that moment. Not just believe him. Not just believe intellectually that things will work out for good, but cling on to him. Hold on to him. Love him in that moment prison cell moment he makes that condition very clear if you look at your verse it says for those who love God that comes before all things work out for good right and the way that the original language does it is to put emphasis on that clause for those who love God it's the same as if I would say if we get LeBron James we will win the NPA championship final where's the emphasis LeBron that's what Paul's doing here. For those who love God, all things work out for good. Do you see the point of emphasis? So we cannot say this to just anyone at Wildwise. For those who love God. Whatever prison cell you find yourself in, whatever tribulation, frustration, or injustice that you see very much in front of you, so much that it's all that you see in that moment, here's the, here's the challenge. Love God. 
Love God in those moments. Love him because he's sovereign over your tribulations. Love him because he's working them out for good. Love them because he already proved his sovereignty on the cross. Love him because he gives you this promise that he's working them all out for good. And William Cowper, you might have heard of him, is an English poet back in the 1700s. He was actually good friends with John Newton, who penned the words Amazing Grace. And he worked vehemently against um, slavery as part of the abolitionist campaign. Before Cowper came to believe in Jesus, he was uh, institutionalized for uh, insanity for three years. And he struggled with insanity and depression all throughout his life. In fact, he attempted to commit suicide three times. And throughout his life, he was sent to asylums, and he struggled with it. And then he came to faith in Christ. But as he came to understand, come to understand this gospel message, his insanity, his depression didn't go away. And I want to read you a poem that he wrote right before his second major attack of insanity in 1773. I'm going to read it slowly because I want you to consider whatever tribulation you're in right now, whatever suffering that's present in your life, listen to these words. He writes, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep, unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and they shall break. Break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. But unbelief, is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. After he penned those words, he had another attack of insanity and got sent to an asylum. And that tells us that in such moments, it's not about removing certain sufferings of your life, but the question of, in those moments, do you trust and love God so that even in the midst of those moments that God is precious to you? It never went away for Cowper. But his love and the way that he saw God's sovereignty became greater and greater. The clouds will break they may seem dark and dreary. God's ways are unfathomable, but he's treasuring up a bright design. And all you might see is frowning providence, but behind such clouds is his smiling face. For those who love God, 
all things work out for good. Cowper never succumbed to insanity in his death. He actually lived a pretty full life with insanity, but with a greater God, God's sovereign power. The second point. Here we also see that behind such sovereign power that God, he also, he has a purpose. So having established this promise that for those who love God, all things work out for good, I think the natural question now is, what is this good? So how do you define what this good is? Because good can mean different things for many of you. For me, cilantro is good. For my wife, it's the devil. What is this good? How does God define good here? And so we see at the end of verse 28 that good is defined as something that has a purpose. God works all things together for good, and he writes, for those who are called according to his purpose, and that purpose is in verse 29, and it is for us to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what good is. We have to be cautious here to define good on God's terms, not ours. It's not getting whatever you want in your own way, in your own timing. That's not the good that's in verse 29. The good as God defines it is you becoming more like Christ. That's good. As he works out this salvation from justification all the way through glorification in your life. So it doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily mean that the pain's going to go away. It doesn't necessarily mean that the suffering's going to stop or for you to get a financial break or for our children to finally change. That might not be the good God has in mind, but for sure what we can bank on in this promise is that he has the good of making you more like Christ. Don't hold on to something that's not there. Hold on to verse 29. The good is you're going to become more like Christ in your suffering. So here, if good is defined as God wanting us to conform into the likeness of Christ, I think the question next is, and here's the challenge, is this the good that you want in your life more than all other things? Is it? Can you honestly say that right now, even in my suffering right now, more than anything else, I want to be like Christ? More than the absence of this tribulation, more than a certain kind of lifestyle, I want Christ. It's hard to swallow. Right? You know, we've been praying for our church building for quite some time now and somewhere along the way just personally I started to really struggle to having a lot of uh, bitterness frustration and even at one point just feeling sorry for myself feeling sorry for all of us and every time I drive by or pass by a church building I I get tempted and I think to things like you know they don't know what they have they have a beautiful building or man what nice columns they have they have great windows here. And I even think, you know, what did they do to inherit this building? It probably was just around and they just inherited it. And I have these temptations to think these thoughts and it creeps up. And I've seen a lot of churches these past weeks. You know how many churches there are in Italy? There's a lot. 
So you can see how God was making this very prevalent in my life to work this out, struggling each time I saw a church building. And I think the stages of how our heart operates is similar to this. We get bitter. We get frustrated. We ask questions like, why? What's going on? We start to feel sorry for ourselves in our situation, being frustrated. So here's the question. In that moment, is the good that you want more than the release from that suffering, more than getting what you desire, is what you want conformity to Christ? Is that, is Christ who will make you ultimately content. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit. He gave me this verse. Philippians chapter 4, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, in whatever situation, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, in abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse is the second most searched verse on the internet. Do you see where it's coming from? The beautiful thing about that Philippians 4 passage, you go a few verses down later, even though Paul, he declared in his heart, my ultimate good is to be like Christ more than all things. And though he wills his heart to have that promise, you know what he writes a few verses later? He says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus of his glory. Do you see the beauty of that? You focus on being like Christ. Make that your ultimate good. And it's not as if God is this strict, string, uh, stingy God, but as you focus on that, he's going to take care of all that you need according to his glorious, infinite riches. Do you see the beauty of God's sovereignty? He knows what you need. As for you, what you are to focus on is to be like Christ. That's the purpose behind God's sovereignty. And trust in this promise that God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And so whatever tribulation you find yourself in, set your heart and its satisfaction and its comfort in Jesus and consider. Now, ask, how am I to be like Christ in this situation. Your heart might not be there in that moment. Your emotions might take a while to catch up, but you can will it. That's how life works a lot of the time. You have to will something first, and then the emotions come. I had to will to like kale. Now I like it. Will. I trust in this promise. That if I find myself to be content in Christ and in becoming like him, my joy will be complete. And so here's the application. When you pray after this message, when you pray at home tonight, and as soon as you close your eyes, a flood of worry is going to come. And it's going to overflow you. And your instinct might be to despair. 
Your instinct might be to think, okay, how am I going to fix this? Your instinct might be to be frustrated. May the Holy Spirit bring this to mind for you to ask this question, God, how are you making me more like Jesus in this suffering? Hold on to that promise, and God will supply every need that you have. Stay there. Stay on that question until he reveals to you that in this suffering, he's helping you to become more patient. He's training you to be more dependent on God, that he's making you increase your faith. He's allowing you to be a beacon of hope to those co-workers. He's allowing you to show what patience means to your children. And God will take care of the rest. There is a purpose behind God's sovereignty. Final point, God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign plan. We take a moment and step back. All throughout Romans, we've been studying specific doctrines, such as God's revelation in chapter 1, his wrath, God's righteousness in chapter 2. We talked about how justification is by faith alone. We also talked about Christian joy, and we talked about adoption and sanctification. So Paul, he's zooming in on all of these things. But now in chapter 8, as we start to go into the second half of this book, he's now taking a step back and he's zooming out. He's looking at all these things together. That's why you can see in verse 30, for those who he predestined, he called. For those he called, he justified. For those he justified, he also glorified. So we're here now to take a step back. Now look at this whole eternal plan of salvation. And this is what theologians call the golden chain of salvation because one spiritual reality is sovereignly linked to the next. You can't break them apart. And you can get that because Paul writes, for those, it's the same people. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined. For those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For those whom he justified, he glorified. No one's missing. No one gets lost along the way. It's not some of them will get justified, and out of that, some of them will get glorified. Golden chain of salvation. It's unbreakable, and it's true for every believer. And as if that wasn't enough, if you look at the verbs, I know we're doing a little bit of English here. Do you see how it's all in the past tense? He called you, justified you, and now get this. He glorified you. What do you think about that? Because you and I know that glorification, when we become like Christ in perfection, that's somewhere in the future, right? Shouldn't he say something like, and he will glorify you? No, because in God's mind, your glorification is as good as done. The way God looks at the things in your life is not the way that you look at them. For us, glorification is future. For God, glorification has happened in his eternal plan of salvation for you. It's not just something that we look forward to, but it's something that exists in God's sovereignty already. He's already prepared. He's already prepared your good works. He's already prepared your joy and your satisfaction and your glorification. In Ephesians, he says, before the foundation of the world, he's prepared them. And in 1 Peter, he says, he's guarding it. No one can take it away. Not even you. 
And he says it's imperishable, it's unfading, it's undefiled. And it says it's being guarded by faith to be revealed in the last time, 1 Peter. See, the way that we look at things in our lives, we see them as they progress, don't we? But be reminded, that's not how God looks at your life. He has it all figured out, already prepared. He doesn't respond to how you act right now. He already knows the blessings that he's going to send you tomorrow as you trust in his promise. He already knows how you're going to conform into the likeness of Christ. You know, this past Christmas when I went to my family's uh, house for um, the vacation, for a holiday, you know, we don't normally prepare individual gifts for everyone. Uh, We just give some allowance to some of the older parents. But uh, for some reason, the spirit of Christmas got me, I decided to give a present to every single person. And during that time, I gave this present, this gift to this person. I'm not going to mention who, but as I gave it to him, he looked a little flabbergasted. And as he received it, he was like, oh, thank you. And he goes, you know, um, I have a present for you too. And he runs upstairs. And I start to wonder why wasn't my present along with the other presents underneath the tree. A couple minutes pass and I'm wondering why is it taking so long for you to just bring my present that you've already prepared. And he comes downstairs and he says, I got this for you. And I have a picture of what he got me. It's a Spider-Man wallet. Now I'm trying to trust in the goodness of man And fight the thought that his favorite Marvel character is Spider-Man. Not mine. Mine's Captain America. (laughs) Fight against the temptation to think, why is it not wrapped? Why is it not underneath the tree? That's not how God works. That's not how he works. It's already prepared for you. It's to be revealed. Are you looking forward to that? The things that he holds for you tomorrow and for this week, the blessings that are in Christ, it's already prepared. Figure them out. Find out about them. See them being manifested in your life. And don't we love singing that song? And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's how our glorification works. When you believe, when you first believe in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, all of us, we have different ways of getting into this eternal plan of salvation. For me, it was a car accident. For you, it might have been loneliness. For you, it might have been depression. It might have been a miracle that God worked in your life. And that might be your entry point. But as soon as you open the door, You don't just see God delivering you from something. You don't just see God giving you a ticket to heaven. As soon as you open the door, you see a vast ocean of God's sovereign, eternal plan that he's already prepared for you to become more like Christ. But we don't see that at first, right? God, just help me through this. Get me out of this. And he does even though he's already had this planned for you. When is he going to start to reveal his plan? Or is he going to remain a God that just gets you out of trouble 
And when are you going to start to dive into this vast ocean of glory and blessing that he has already prepared for you? Paul says he foreknew you before you were born. And it's not this intellectual knowing. He didn't just know about you. He didn't know just, okay, this is what you're going to be doing, and based upon that, I'm going to love you. That's not how the word know is used. The way that the word know is used in the Bible is very intimate. Remember, Adam knew his wife. Jeremiah chapter 1, he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. There is an intimacy in the way that God knew you. I wonder what eternal plan of salvation is going to look like in the daily lives. I wonder what it's going to be like once we start thinking in terms of God's plan, not according to ours. And once we make becoming like Christ our greatest good. We do have a God who is sovereign over our lives, and his purpose is to conform you into like Christ. It's powerful enough to bring that to completion. And if you trust in that promise, we have every reason to be happy in the Lord, even in the midst of all these frustrations and tribulations. I'm going to end with this final anecdote. And I bring up Jonathan Edwards, and we bring him up a lot. As I mentioned, he's probably one of the most influential pastor theologians in the early 1700s in America. Now, he was 18 years old when he wrote his first sermon. And I thought, that's not that young, right? And I just realized I'm actually twice that age now almost. He was 18 years old, and he wrote this first sermon that's very influential today at the age of 18. It's called Christian Happiness. And I encourage you. It's very short. I encourage you to read it. But he gives three points in that sermon. The first, well, his main premise is that Christians always have a reason to be happy. Always. Reason number one, your bad things will turn out for good. That's verse 28, right? Your bad things will turn out for good. Number two, your good things can never be taken away from you. That's verse 30, right? You're justified, glorified. Can never be taken away from you. And the third thing, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Your bad things will turn out for good. And if this is true for the Christian, any worldly hurt, is all it is is just sharp medicine, he says, where it's painful in the moment, but at most, the worst it can do is to release you from your sin and disease and from your cancer and enter into a world of bliss in Christ. That's the worst it can do. And he gives this analogy. He says, you know, if someone was to prick you with a needle, and yet he says, after this needle, you're going to have 70 years of a healthy life. That prick is going to mean nothing to you. And he says, expand that to not just 70 years, but for all eternity. And he's saying, whatever you're going through now pales in comparison to the weight of glory that's prepared for you. When he says that all the good things that you have now can never be taken away from you, and that's when, when, when we are facing these devastating afflictions in our lives, that even in the worst of our moments, God is available. God is there. His spirit is there with you. And that can never be taken away from you. 
Your salvation can never be taken away from you. Your glorification can never be taken away from you. You conforming to Christ can never be taken away from you. And he says, thirdly, the best is yet to come. And you can look forward to that, where you will have your utmost joy and satisfaction. And think in that way, brothers and sisters. John Newton, he says, you know, think about it like this. If there was a man going to New York to inherit this large estate, and say that his carriage breaks a mile before he gets into the city, how foolish would it be for him to say, oh, my carriage, my wheel, my carriage. The best is yet to come. And if you're fixed upon that, your bad will turn out for good. The good things will never be taken away from you. And the best is yet to come. Why? Because God works sovereignly in your life. Let's pray. I encourage all of us to take a moment and to consider what God is placing you in right now and the suffering or tribulation that you've been going through. And like I mentioned, before the flood of emotions take over, trust in this promise that God's working them out for good and he has a purpose to make you more like Christ. Perhaps you can ask this question, God, what are you trying to teach me? How are you making me like Christ? And when you do, you will redefine what good is, and you will find your joy, your satisfaction in his purpose. Let's pray like that.